welcome to another episode, episode six, huh? Episode six. Quarter life crisis. Quarter dozen. Nope, that's a half dozen. <laughs> yep. Damn it, don't learn That was a Sam thing to say. Oh! Oh! Just because something... No. Sam thing is where you mess up a word. It's not where you say something stupid. That was messing up the word. I didn't, okay. You know. It was also stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you're not wrong. <sighs> okay, so we thought the theme of this episode could be trying new things. I think that's uh, very relevant to finding yourself and your path and uh, something you'll hear in this episode that I've been thinking about. I recorded this interview last week and unfortunately our dear friend Sam wasn't (laughs) able to Join us on this interview, so you just get to listen I to me. I, I tuned yeah, in. I tuned in. She helped me and in, you know. Yeah. But um, something we talk about in this episode is people always are trying to find what they want to do. You know, specifically, we were talking about in their career. But it's almost kind of better to, like, try everything and find the things you don't like. Right. Start checking things off the list. Right. So that's been kind of my uh, mindset lately. Tried, like, a five new things in the last couple of weeks right last last week you told the uh, listeners about your new professional career as a curler <laughs> yeah and then uh what else did you get into well you and i golfed we did we although golfed. that wasn't brand new for either of us it was uh Not very much do. a learning experience right 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 do you want to you want to yeah uh so that was my second time ever golfing you know like a couple rounds um, and Sam was actually on two golf teams, <laughs> and, uh, it was very interesting. I think it took us a solid 25 minutes to tee off from the first hole. <laughs> um, okay, and first of all, I just want to back up. Although my career, my resume may be filled with golf experience, it's mm-hmm. a lie, because when I did golf for the first time, I did it because I figured out I didn't have to run like a mile every <laughs> Thursday if I did golf team. So I literally did golf to get out of running. Fair. So then my second golf experience was when I was at boarding school and it was a chance to get off of campus, which they locked us basically in there all the time. So once again, not for golf, more so that I could drink a Red Bull unsupervised, and it was super, super badass. Get wild, yeah. Get wild, get crunk on that Red Bull, eat a Snickers bar, Whoa. no one telling you what to do. I can't even explain to you. It's really, It was really exciting. I could imagine. But, yeah, no, uh, it. I really struggled on that first hole. And a few others. Okay, that. that first one, though, was really bad. Yeah, and you steadily improved through the I entire did. game. I, You know, the first hole probably took... Well, 25 minutes, guess how many swings that is. And most of it was me. Yeah, it took me a few, probably three or four. It took you probably 30 or 40. That's not not an exaggeration. No, it's not. In my my defense, though, I'm tall, and those... I think those clubs were short. Sure, we'll go with that. Okay. But I pulled up a YouTube, Mm -hmm. started... I drove the card around. Like a crazy-ass woman who almost dumped me out, like, three times. Wasn't that the point? Is that what you're supposed to try to do? I mean, you know, you lived with me while my neck was broken, so I just thought, like, maybe there'd be, like, oh... Didn't even cross my mind. I know. I clearly know when I almost dumped (laughs) out three times. I was like, dear God. But, um... Yeah, no, by the end of the, by the ninth hole, I felt like I was 
really, I was, your best, I felt it. Your best shot was the ninth hole where you got it on to uh, the putting green in a very nice shot. Yeah, I think I got, what is it called, a bogey when it's like one over par? No, a bogey is one under par. Oh, okay. Or no, you're right. Yeah. Because like, it's a birdie. Birdie is one under. Yeah, and a bogey, you're not right. as cool sounding. Well, I got a fucking bogey. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not amazing. good. <laughs> For someone who it took 30 times yeah, to even right. hit a ball. Like, you're that right. is, so, I was really proud of myself for dedication, perseverance, mm-hmm. humor, proud yeah. of you for patience. I was very patient. You were really patient. Thanks. I could tell maybe that, like, inside when your eyelids started twitching, you were like, am I really going to play nine holes with this girl? But... But I did. I'm really glad you stuck around. Stay by my side, chicka. Sure thing. <laughs> we also... We also... Got crafty yesterday. Right. We made some homemade candles. That we are burning right now. We are. We used some beeswax and melted it down and put some essential oils Which all up in it. Shannon is also wearing essential oils right Not now. Not choice. Sam just <laughs> attacked me and now I smell like a hippie. Better, better things. Worse things? Wait, yeah, wait. Let's try that again. Worse things to smell like. Yeah. So, this is, uh, we challenge our listeners to try something new this week. Share with us the weirdest thing that you can try. Get yourself out of your comfort zone. Eat a new food. Try a new activity. Wear essential oils. I don't recommend that one, but... (laughs) Put them in your candles. There you go. Yeah, that's fun. Do something crafty. Go dance or go do something you don't do and check it off the list because I think he is so right. I think that there's such a pressure right now to feel like we need to be in our careers. And instead, what if we just have this playful attitude where it's like, do I like this? What can I learn from it? And still showing up even if you've committed to do something for a period of time, like show up, you know? Yep. That's uh, a struggle sometimes, but it's important. Yeah. But it's usually... We're both kind of runners. We are? What do you mean? I've heard you say that about yourself. Before. A runner? Oh, okay. Yeah. Not get, like okay. not like we go out for runs for fun, I but it. I mean like we run from problems sometimes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. First sight of a problem, but I'm like... See ya! Yeah. <laughs> I've invested nothing. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, every day, getting better at life. Yeah, I agree, and I think that... I feel that both of us have been challenged to use our voice and speak in times of conflict where we might have run. Yeah. And I will say it's been feeling good. And I think it takes a level of like trusting yourself to be like, oh, I'm going to use my voice here and like, whatever, maybe this person will get mad, maybe not. But either way, it's something that's bothering you and needs to be said, you know? It's a very adult thing to do and it's a skill that I absolutely need to work on, but it's, uh, Getting there. It's getting there. Yeah. I I can see that you've yeah. been trying. Well, I know for me, I, I you encourage well. me to do so. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here's to trying new things. Trying new things. Using your voice. Using your voice. And wearing essential oils. Again, not <laughs> one, but 
Hope you enjoyed the episode and make sure to do all the good stuff. Like, okay, our iTunes account is acting kind of funny. We're working on it. Um, but you can always get the episode on SoundCloud. You can subscribe and like us on SoundCloud. In the yeah. meantime, share our Facebook if you like us. Um, send it to your friends. Send it yeah. to anybody who needs some inspiration, some gold nuggets. Yeah, and I've talked to a handful of people last week who've reached out wanting to share their stories, which is so cool. So if you're in that boat, um, you know, we're in Missoula, but we can Skype anywhere, and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Welcome to another episode of Quarter Life Crisis. Uh, we are here today with Michael Braun. What up? He is currently a professor at the University of Montana. What are you teaching this semester? Uh, entrepreneurship and business model design. Okay. Fun stuff. Absolutely. Uh, here's a quick bio about Michael Braun. He received his Bachelor in Asian Studies from Cornell, a uh, master's with a Hearst Fellowship, I don't know what that means, uh, in publishing and media from New York University, his MBA from the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, and his PhD in management from the University of Massachusetts. Um, so Michael was born in Switzerland. Yep. Spent time in Zurich, Brussels, and London growing mm -hmm. up, right? And uh, when did you move to the United States? I was 14, so I remember uh, we were living in Switzerland, and my only exposure to the U.S. was obviously movies like E.T., so <laughs> uh, when my dad said we were moving to the U.S., I thought, or at least I was hoping it would be California or New York, something exotic, and then he said, nope. We're moving to Detroit. Ooh. Yeah. And I was like, ew. Uh, but it ended up being cool. I mean, Detroit's an awesome town. Car culture, music culture, so I really enjoyed it. Were your parents from the United States or born in No, Canada? my parents are, uh, my, my dad's Swiss, my mom's Italian. Okay. Yeah. So it was a little bit of an adjustment, especially sort of the whole schooling thing, which is very different. Going to college, that was totally unexpected. That was not something in the cards but, you know, I ended up going to school and then... A lot of school. <laughs> a lot of school, which is basically indicative of I didn't know what to do with my life, so right. it's perfect for this podcast. <laughs> so if, so your first uh, degree, you went to Cornell. Yeah. Why'd you pick Cornell? Uh, <laughs> it was the only school I got into, and my sister went there. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I went there, and it was, it was good. I mean, I felt a little lost there. Yeah. You know, I, it was... I went in with Asian studies, really Japanese, which is pretty much the hardest uh, major that you can, or degree that you can, you can choose. You have to become fluent, basically. Jeez. So, you know, I, I was having a little bit of a challenging time, and then I started um, getting into creative writing, which was a lot more fun. And I, I still graduated with an Asian studies degree in Japanese, which I haven't used at all. What did you plan on using with that? I have no idea. It was, just it was just like one of those things, you know, you walk in and, and, you know, I was just like, okay, that sounds interesting, kind of, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, what, I'm supposed to do something with this? And, you know, ironically, Japan went into a recession for the next 16 years, so it was like, okay, that's not going to work out. Yeah. How old were you when you graduated? Uh, I, was I was 21. Okay, and then what did you do? And then it was like, what do I do now? So, yeah, uh, yeah, so I, you know, my friends were going to New York, obviously from, from Cornell, you go to New York City a lot of times, and they were getting into investment banking and all sorts of stuff, and I was like, I really don't know what to 
do. So because I was doing creative writing, I was like, well, maybe I should go get my master's in fine arts. I should become a writer, right? And I was doing short stories and novellas and stuff like that. And then I was like, boy, you know, what I know about uh, writers is that uh, they're underpaid and usually they're alcoholics. So I was like, yeah, maybe not. So I looked at the next best thing and it was like, oh, what about if I'm still in that world of writing, but I'll look at publishing. Hmm. And funny enough, at NYU, they had this program. It was basically a two-year program, really a one-year program, where they give you a master's in publishing where you learn everything about the publishing industry. Hmm. And I applied there, and they gave me a scholarship, a fellowship, and that's why I ended up going to NYU. And you've gone on to actually publish at quite a few things right yeah so that came later I okay. mean I you know when I went to NYU uh, what was neat is there was sort of really hands-on business of publishing so we did marketing and accounting and finance and so on and so forth but mm -hmm. what was neat was that I was doing a lot of internships mm -hmm. and I was doing internships with trade publishers and consumer publishers and then textbook publishers and all sorts of stuff just in and out, just to kind of say, oh, I like this, I don't like that. So that was probably the best thing. I mean, that in addition to actually living in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. How was that in your 20s? It was awesome. What, uh, what years was that? Oh, boy, that was last millennium. So okay. it was uh, early 90s. Oh, okay. So I did that, and, you know, I'd always wanted to be in New York, so that was, that was neat. I liked doing the internships. I liked doing the classes. And then uh, I ended up actually working at Playboy. Yeah, so my first full-time job out of undergraduate was at Playboy magazine, <laughs> first in the Czech Republic with one of their foreign editions, okay. which was awesome, very entrepreneurial. You know, the, the Iron Curtain had just come down a couple of years before, and, you know, here I was 22, 23 years old, and I actually knew how to spell marketing, <laughs> and these people had never had a, an inkling of marketing because they operated in a communist environment. Huh. So I was already sort of a, a seasoned veteran just because I'd grown up in a consumer culture, right? Hmm. So they actually had me working on some really cool stuff. I was doing like um, advertising um, page designs. I was uh, doing event management. Um, we actually hosted the first PGA golf tournament in Eastern Europe and I was hmm. heavily involved in that. So that was really cool. Do you ever go to the mansion? Yeah, I did. How was that? I know. So, so sort of bittersweet, and oh. here's why. Because I moved back to New York. I was, I was in the Czech Republic for about eight, nine months. And then um, I met the publisher, the head publisher of the U.S. edition. And uh, he was like, hey, you know, uh, if you come back to New York, why don't you look me up and we'll get you in here? And I was like, right on. And... What I realized is I went from a very entrepreneurial, intimate environment into a very big corporate environment. Hmm. And for me, that just did not jive, man. Mm -hmm. So I was in New York, beautiful offices, 57th and 5th, surrounded by like Andy Warhol art and everything. Hmm. But the culture was different because, you know, in the U.S., we sort of think differently about sort of sexuality and nudity and all that stuff. And already it was on the on the decline, so I didn't last very long. So I uh, had an opportunity to go throw a party at the mansion. I did that, and that was fun. You threw it? Yeah, I actually wow. brought my my uh, my my publisher from 
the Czech Republic to LA, and it, this was not like you know what you hear about. It's not like <laughs> you know. Some, sure. It was uh, more of a PR event, but yeah, we had um, Hef in his bathrobe or whatever <laughs> his sleeping robe show yeah. up, and you know um, it was cool. But yeah, shortly after that, I quit. Okay, and is that when you moved to California? Or was there no, time in between? No, there was still some time. Oh, okay. So you know, then I didn't know what to do, and I ended up working in a small direct marketing firm. So I went back into the entrepreneurial environment, just because I like to work on things where I can get a pretty quick feedback, and I can also say I did that. So mm -hmm. it's you know, it's instant gratification. Instant gratification, and also sort of the locus of control. Sure. Right. Very internal or yeah. e external. Is that external? I, I don't know. I just needed. Didn't to you teach stuff. me that? I don't. Did I? <laughs> Someone I just, did. Not me, different class. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it was me. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, for me, it was like you know, let me work on something, and I also want credit for it, versus being in sort of a big corporate machine. And I think there are benefits and disadvantages to both. But I, I definitely found myself um, feeling much better, and you know, being more productive in that smaller environment. So I did that for three years. So how many jobs did you have in your 20s? Different companies Ooh. or different companies? Well, I guess in my 20s, I would sell four. Okay. Uh, yeah, so because it was um, the licensee of Playboy in the Czech Republic, then it was Playboy, then it was a company called Mars, and then after the MBA in Southern California, it was Investment Banking. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So... Then you moved to California after the three yep. years at Mars. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You know, I need to get out of New York. I mean, there's the old adage that, you know, um, work in New York but leave before it makes you hard, and mm -hmm. work in LA and leave before it makes you soft. So I'd been in New York at that point five years, and I was like, all right, I'm ready for a change. And um, I thought, you know, I, I wanted to go get an MBA. Um, I looked around, and there was one in in Southern California at USC that focused on entrepreneurship. And I actually thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur until I got there, and then I was like, maybe I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Really? And I got more intrigued by the financing side. Hmm. So venture capital and private equity. And then, so yeah, then you worked in LA, right? Uh-huh. For the boutique merchant bank, Stevens and Partners? Yep, did that. So that was a lot of fun. What I was mean, your role there? Uh, my role was basically to put together deals, hmm. you know, so we had two sides of the business. One was buying and selling companies for corporate clients, and then the other side was working with private equity groups. These are large institutional investors hmm. and putting together investment ideas for them and then also sourcing um, the management talent and, you know, going out there and, and building from scratch hopefully world-class competitors. So hmm. it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much. I had a great mentor who was my boss, Jeff Stevens. And uh, and also it was, you know, it was just a way to, uh, I don't know, get more strategically involved with companies, which I really enjoyed. Hmm. So working with C-level management on, uh, you know, evaluating growth opportunities. Hmm. Yeah. What was your sign that you needed to move companies? Or what, what was the key factor of saying, yeah. time to go? What's the next Yeah, uh, you know, I think whenever, it, listen, that was, that was like 25 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, now when I kind of tell that story, 
or the progression of stuff, it's very seamless. Right. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it sounds like, but it's not. And, you know, in some ways I'm still as confused as I was back then. <laughs> um, I think uh, sometimes it was my own decision. Sometimes it was situational, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think sometimes there were external factors like, I don't know, maybe a relationship was there that kind of said, oh, you know what, if I'm going to move, then you're going to move, or vice versa. Or then other things were just like, man, this is not working out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people know how to work through that stuff right. for better or worse. And then, you know, people like me, at least at that age, were a little bit more impulsive and said, screw it. Yeah, that's... That's, yeah, I don't, uh, when I get the feeling it's time to go, I go. <laughs> That's sure. something that I, I don't know if it's good or bad yet, but I just, I tend to do that. But. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at the time, it, it, you know, it felt like it was the right thing to do, I think. You know, maybe later on you'll look back on it and say, well, maybe that was sort of my youthful impulse, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe I should have. But you know what? If you start trying to live by shoulda, coulda, woulda, right. uh, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. So how long after that did you get into teaching? That was a big oh. span. Well, so I was in investment banking for three years. And, you know, three years doesn't sound a long time, but it was really intense. Mm. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of hours and it's very sort of thrill of the kill kind of work where you are a lot of times racing against the clock and trying to put some of these deals together. So while it was enjoyable, it was also kind of draining. And uh, during that time, I had my first kid. Hmm. And it was kind of like, well, I'm not sure that if we want to have a f- big family that, you know, my, my wife and I, that we wanted to really continue down this path. And there were a couple of other sort of extenuating cir- circumstances that had an impact, I think, and yeah, one of the big ones was 9-11. I mean, hmm. 9-11 really threw things upside down. So, it, it, you know, for a lot of folks, it was sort of a soul-searching thing. Hmm. And L.A. was on high alert, and, you know, I'd been traveling to New York quite a bit, and I had lived in New York, and I'd looked at the Twin Towers, and it was kind of like, wow, you know, this is the kind of world that uh, we live in and, and the kind of world that I'm going to try to bring my kids up in. So, um, you know... The good thing is I had another reference point, which was my in-laws, who had both taught here at the University of Montana. Hmm. And about a month after 9-11, I came up here, and I went fishing with my father-in-law. And it was like, you know, it felt super safe, and it felt like, wow, you can live in a place like this and feel like the troubles of, of the world really don't reach you. So it was at that point that I started kind of thinking to myself, how do I get to live in a place like and that's when I, I started, you know, running some numbers on entrepreneurial ideas, which is tough in Montana. I mean, the numbers really have to pencil out for you to, to kind of, um, you know, make a, a decent living. And then it was um, through my in-laws that I was like, so what is this academic thing? Like, <laughs> you know, and again, I mean, it's something that I'd never considered. It's not like I was a very good student undergrad uh, oops yeah, now it's out right <laughs> but uh, but yeah I, I started looking at that and it sounded like yeah sounds like I might be able to do that
that night I went and got my PhD at UMass Amherst in strategic management did that three and a half years and then I came here and I've been here ever since <laughs> all right yeah um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, shop to give oh I remember that from class and yes. it's mentioned here in your bio yeah can you can you describe what that is for sure of? so shop to give was a cause-related e-commerce comp company during the first dot-com boom and then bust. Mm -hmm. So it was actually an MBA student, uh, an alum from USC who had started it. And basically, the, the, his premise was you would sign up through his site at shop to give and you would be able to designate um, you know, your nonprofit organization that you'd want to make a donation to whenever you went shopping with member retailers, right? So it was a gateway, and through that gateway, you'd go shopping at, at the time, it was Omaha Steaks and Patagonia and so on and so forth. And whenever you bought something, a small percentage of your purchase price would go towards your designated nonprofit organization, whether it was, um, I don't know, uh, you know, the Red Cross or the local church or a little league or whatever it was. And you could pick any charity that you wanted? Any one, and that was a little bit of the problem. There were, at the time, something like 500,000 501c3s. Wow. And just managing that whole thing ended up being a logistical nightmare, and it was really sort of a, a business model um, downfall for the company. So, yeah, I got involved first on a consulting basis, and then, you know, I, the, 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 the founder, Omni was his name, he was like, hey, why don't you join us? And, you know, I got written into sort of the management structure as we were trying to get uh, additional monies out. And just then, things started to go south, and I was like, ah, you know what, I'm going to go into investment banking. Okay, so that's when you yeah. see you. Yeah. Okay. And I forgot to ask you the question I'm supposed to, we ask every person yeah. in the very beginning. If you were a type of dog, what breed would you be? Oh. You have a dog, well, right? Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, since I'm Swiss, it would be like a Swiss mountain dog, probably. <laughs> but do you, <laughs> can you relate to those characteristics other than the Swiss part? Um, no, I guess not. I mean, I'm I would more... see like an Australian Shepherd. Oh, yeah? Something hyper. Oh, okay, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I definitely have that. I mean, the other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly a purebred, so I'm a True. little mix of everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I definitely throw that in there just because, you know, I, I moved around so much. I lived in a lot of places. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I feel at home everywhere and nowhere in a way. What, speaking of, you know, living everywhere, and including Europe, what, can you say are some of the main differences of, you know, you growing up in Europe versus your kids growing up in the United States? Yeah. What are some of the differences there? Besides the times and, you know. Yeah, right. Besides the times. I mean, you know, every generation says about the, the generation that comes after them that they're lazy and I don't know what else, right? Right. But, um, but I wouldn't say that. Um, but there is a big difference for me, you know, between the U.S. mentality and for, for sake of argument right here, the European mentality, and now obviously Europe is 26 different countries, right. so where are we talking? I mean, mm -hmm. Germany's gonna be a lot different from Greece, right? Mm -hmm. But between Switzerland and Italy, um, and you know, my, my folks and my sister living there now, I mean, I think the US right now, there is still a little bit of a major emphasis on living to work, right? There is sort of this pressure to, 
get on a career track. At least when we're talking sort of folks who are getting their college education, you know, you're going to get your degree and then you're going to go. The other thing is here in the U.S., we basically kick the kids out of their house and tell them to go for four years to get their degree, and that's where they're going to do a lot of their growing and drinking and everything else, right? right? And then it's like you go out. That really doesn't happen in Europe. Hmm. With a lot of universities, if indeed you go to university, you're still living at home. Huh, and really? then you just go and do your classes there, and you, you come back in the evening. So the growing up kind of still happens within the family realm, mm -hmm. within your community. It's not like you're getting ripped out and, and you know, going across the country or whatever mm -hmm. to get your education. That's interesting. So I think that one to me is really sort of um, one of the bigger um, differences. I guess the other one is, at least with Switzerland, there's much more of a focus on younger folks getting um, like apprenticeships. Mm. Which learning a skill or a trade. Learning a skill and easing into that. Okay. Whereas here it's still like, oh, you have a degree. Now go find a job. Right. And, you know, I mean, we're seeing, I think, that, you know, having a degree. It's just an expensive piece of paper. Well, <laughs> it, it doesn't mean what it used to. Right. right? So uh, just because you have, you know, uh, um, Bachelor of Science in something or a Bachelor of Arts, uh, that doesn't mean that you know something. And companies are going to be like, listen, I need you to hit the ground running. I need you to justify your return on investment. I'm going to pay you 60000 bucks a year. What are you going to do for me? Hmm. So, yeah. yeah, and, you know, part of the reason why I live in Montana is the lifestyle, mm -hmm. the slower, you know, and that's mm -hmm. something... I don't know, but that's something that I imagine that is in, a, like, Switzerland or Italy, a lot of European countries. It just seems like it's a more relaxed mm -hmm. or, you know, just focus on a, a better quality of life, not making a trillion yeah, bucks. definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with you that, you know, here in Montana, you do still keep some of the, the bigger city pressures at bay, right? right. So we, we, can, we can live in sort of a community and a society here that doesn't go at sort of 500 miles an hour of that fifth gear where you've got to keep up with the Joneses and everything. And you hear that. I mean, San Francisco, L.A., New York, Boston, it really is a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's nice about uh, Missoula and Montana in general. You do get some of the, the – you, you do get the other side. I mean, you do get companies, you know, some of the more higher-growth, high-tech companies – here in Missoula, and, and then the issue is always how do you hire for that without giving up why people live here, mm -hmm. right? So these companies say, well, we want to grow or we want to compete on maybe a nationwide, if not international basis, but the access to talent is going to be difficult when you have people who are like, listen, I moved here so I can... Not you know, work 80 hours a week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um... Your oldest is getting ready for college, right? In a couple years? Yeah, so she's a junior. Okay. And are you guys encouraging going to college? Would she ever think of not going to college? And what would you guys think? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, uh, you're touching on a sensitive spot uh -oh. there. No, I, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, my kids have had exposure to Europe. I mean, we lived there for... 
two full years over the last five years, so they got different reference points there as well. So I think, or I hope that that'll be informative in their decision. To tell you the truth, from my perspective, I don't really care what they do, uh, and I don't mean that like I don't care what they do, right. but if they decide that college is not for them or it's not for them now or whatever it is and they'd rather go do something else as long as they feel good about it and they're doing something that they think is worthwhile and contributing mm-hmm. that's fine with me okay yeah no that's interesting i always think about that from a pers- professor standpoint you know it's like you sure. see all these kids who i don't know i know a lot of people who maybe shouldn't yeah. I'm going to college, you know? Like, right, I know, like, and how do, you, how do you fight that, right? right. I mean, it, when that's is, what you're supposed to do, and especially with your parents' pressure or society's pressure, you're yeah. just kind of like, well. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there's sort of an automatic, you know, you're going to go out and, 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 and go to college, right? But I do think that for a lot of folks, you know, just take a year before you decide that. Do a gap year, Yeah. for instance, right? I don't know, go do something else, somewhere else. Just so then, if you really want to go to college, then you've thought that through. Right. And you know why you're going and what you want out of it, or maybe a little bit more. Sure. But I mean, I see the, oh man, when I see freshmen, and uh, I don't teach freshmen, but when I see freshmen on campus, they look so young. (laughs) It's like, how do you know, how how do you even know anything at that point? Right. (laughs) Right. Right. It's just what you're supposed to do so everyone does it kind of thing what advice would you give yourself in your early or mid-20s if you could oh and you mentioned the you know not looking back on the shoulda coulda woulda but if you you know right um well you know that one is hard because it is sort of uh i don't know it's like a back to the future kind of thing you know (laughs) if i alter anything then i wouldn't be where i am today yeah Yeah. butterfly effect and then you know because, you know, I, I, I feel very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, probably a little bit more patience. Um, I think maybe um, a little bit more sort of thinking three steps ahead, right? And I don't mean career-wise, just sort of action-reaction, right? Because sometimes it was a little bit like I was jerking the wheel, that I was driving in terms of my life, and I was, you know. And it also made for very interesting stuff, though. Yeah. So I don't regret that at all. I mean, and, you know, you might remember my saying this, but I, I truly believe it, that your 20s are, are not for you to get on a career track unless that is exactly what you know you want to do. But it's really for you to experiment a little bit and say, boy, you know, I have, I've had these itches that I've wanted to scratch. Maybe I'll try this and maybe I'll try that. I don't know. There's different things that I want to get out of the, the, the way while I'm still single mm-hmm. and I don't have too many obligations. Right. Because if you go down that road where all of a sudden you are planning on a family and then you're going to have these obligations of, you know, the family and mortgages and all this other stuff, your options get limited very quickly. You've made it work, though. I have. Yeah, I mean, you're lucky. I mean, but in terms of, you know, it, traveling and adventures and yeah. things like that. and you can do that in academia, right? right? But where else do you find that? True. I mean, 
As an academic, you're given tenure, lifetime employment. That doesn't even exist anymore unless <laughs> right. you go to Japan. Right. Right. So I, yeah, I mean, I think there are there are ways to do it, but you know, out there in the in the hard and cruel business world where companies at the end of the day are always penciling out the top line and the bottom line, that becomes difficult to say, hey, I'm going to take six months sabbatical. I'm going to go, I don't know, backpacking in New Zealand. And then you come back and they're like, well, why are you back here? Well, we've replaced you. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, what, if anything, have you found is maybe a specific challenge of teaching millennials? Oh, Um, Oh, I don't know. That one is tough for me, right? Because you read about this. I I think it's such a... We're entitled, we're lazy, we're this That's such a crock of poop, man. Um, Because, I mean, there's so much of that out there. And it was great. There was an article in The Guardian or something that basically goes back 100 years where, you know, every sort of younger generation gets, you know, labeled as lazy or this or that. Right. I think one thing that I will say, and, and I do address it directly in my classes, it's this reliance on technology to get the answer. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we have a question and then we just go straight for the smartphone and we pick up any first answer that we get without really thinking a couple of levels deeper to say, wait a minute, where does this answer come from and why is this that kind of answer? Because I just have a hard time believing in absolute truth and beauty, mm-hmm. right? So I think that sometimes just the questioning needs to be there rather than just going for the answer. Okay. Um, have you noticed any specific positive traits of the millennial oh, group? Maybe sure. that, you know, in terms yeah. of being te- teachable or whatever. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I think in general... Like I said, I mean, besides sort of getting away from the technology aspect of it, um, there is much more of an awareness to some of the, the social and environmental and political problems, right? Which is the flip side of technology. Technology. Right. I mean, much more informed on global and national issues, right? Yeah. So that's why we're, we are seeing sort of a, a stepping back a little bit and saying, oh, you know what, there are different ways to live and we have to keep in mind sort of resource constraints. Mm-hmm. So I think that one is, to me, a, is a really interesting angle when you're teaching students who have much more of a, an awareness about you know the world that they live in. Well, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are all the questions I prepared. Okay. Do you have any final advice for any kids in their 20s right now listening? Well, I don't know. I mean, I would ask you, so, (laughs) (laughs) you know. I got nothing. (laughs) You you and I are 20 years apart. I Mm -hmm. mean, um, let's, you you talk to me about going back in time. Mm -hmm. Let's fast forward with you 20 years. Hmm. Where do you want to be and how do you want to live your life? You know, I grew up in a family where I love my dad. He's, He's the greatest, but he worked his ass off from he retired two years ago and the first job he got outside of college was the company he retired with wow i mean so i mean that's that's just mind-blowing in itself but and he worked his ass off i mean he traveled basically every week monday through friday Uh and and i admire that a lot you know i mean he 
provided an amazing life for his family, but looking back at that and reflecting on that, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. You right. know, I think, and I also think this is part of the technology aspect is I can see in five seconds everything that's out there. And that makes me not want to sit behind a computer all day. It makes me want to travel. It makes right. me want to, you know, so that that would be my goal is for 20 years from now to be in a place and to look back and be and say, you know, I want to be have a successful career and I want to do that. But right. I also want to do shit and I want to see stuff and I want to experience things. Uh, I would tell you, I mean, so, you know, you asked for sort of last advice and mm-hmm. you just touched on it. If you don't know what you want to do, then figure out what you don't want to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's why I always ask if, if folks are like, I don't know what to do with my life. Well, do you want to shovel shit in a zoo? And they say <laughs> no. I said, well, then let's start with crossing that off, <laughs> yeah, right? And then the more that you cross off, the more of a direction that you do get. Sure. So start kind of moving towards that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. But hey, that's just my opinions. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Thanks a lot for talking to us. Thanks, Shannon. Have a good one.